Hello and welcome to Well Tempered, the podcast about the smart, creative, and crafty women in the chocolate industry. I'm your host, Lauren Heinick. I'm thrilled to launch a new set of interviews with incredibly gifted and generous humans from the world of academia. In this scholar series, my first guest is Dr. Christy Leslie, colloquially known as Dr. Chocolate. This is by no means meant to replicate Dr. Leslie's other stellar interviews, and we talk about very diverse subjects on this episode. Do go check out the Unwrapped podcast hosted by Sunita de Tourelle of The Chocolate Garage and Brian Bikey. They also interview Dr. Leslie, and it's a great episode. Dr. Chrissy Leslie is a scholar of cocoa and chocolate. Since 2004, her work has investigated the politics, economics, and cultures of these industries. Focusing on West African political economy and trade, the U.S. craft market, and the complex meanings produced and consumed through chocolate making and advertising, her recent book, Coco, explores cocoa, geopolitics, and personal politics. She is affiliate faculty in African Studies at the University of Washington, research associate for the development through trade organization Twin and Twin Trading, and cultural specialist for National Geographic Lindvald Expeditions. She lives in Accra, where she is currently researching for her next book on cocoa value addition across sub-Saharan Africa. Thank you for tuning into our discussion. Here's the show. place to start would be understanding that you have a background and a connection with Ghana and knowing that you are there today and a little bit about maybe what you've witnessed through this past couple decades in its changes or in your own self-reflection. I would love to talk about that. I would say the first time I came to Africa, anywhere in Africa, was more than 20 years ago and I've been on and off on the continent for many different reasons ever since. Obviously, I've had periods of time where I didn't come here or spend a lot of time here. But generally, since the late 90s, I've traveled and lived and worked and, you know, had many different experiences in sub-Saharan Africa. Ghana, in particular, has stood out for me over the years. The first time I ever came here was in 1999. And I didn't really go into the rural regions. I was mainly in Accra. Then I came back in 2005 to do my doctoral field work, and I was here for half a year then, really immersed in the rural regions and in Kumasi, which is the capital of the Ashanti region and the kind of headquarters city for a lot of the cocoa operations in the country. And then since that time, I've been back and forth for lots of reasons, you know, mainly research projects. And now I've been living here again for about a year and a half almost. My experiences, especially in Ghana, span many years. And, you know, what I've seen is both stasis and change. I would say the rural regions are, 
you know, foundationally still very much what they were when I first ever came here, which is to say the infrastructure is still really poor. There's places now that I feel like when I'm driving through the bush, I'll see more electrification in certain areas or things like that. But there hasn't been a lot of change as far as the utilities provision, like kind of basic needs provision that infrastructure supplies in the rural areas. The urban areas have changed almost beyond recognition. Like Accra, where I live now, is just it's unrecognizable to, to me from my first ever visit here. Even though the hotel I stayed in when I first ever came to Ghana is just like a couple blocks away from where I live now. And that's like the, the hotel's still there. But most, I mean, the buildings, the construction, the types of foods that we get here, I don't know, it just seems like a much more intensified flow of international ideas and money. And Accra is very, very, very busy now in a way that it didn't used to feel to me. Like, I feel living in Accra now, like I'm at the kind of center of the world. People are coming and going constantly. There is always something dynamic and interesting happening. And that certainly feels like a change to me. But the rural areas kind of have stayed more or less what they looked like to me, you know, 20 years ago. And certainly cocoa is at the the heart and the center of how you live your life and what's the center of where you form the basis for your scholarship at this point. When you're then moving throughout your life in Accra or throughout the rest of Ghana, how do you notice cocoa part of the lifestyle of maybe the everyday Ghanaian? Again, that would be something I would definitely categorize under the umbrella of not too much change. What has changed in the landscape when I was really, really immersed in, you know, Kumasi cocoa business life in 2005. And by that, I mean, I worked very closely with several of the licensed buying companies that purchased cocoa from farmers. Between then and now, what's changed is the names of the companies that buy cocoa from farmers. The LBCs are the licensed buying companies that I used to work with. Some of them don't exist anymore. Some of them have changed their name. Some of them have changed their ownership. In that way, things change, but only superficially. When it comes to the structure of the system, when it comes to how cocoa moves through the supply chain in Ghana, when it comes to rural livelihoods and the very, very thin margins that people live within by farming cocoa hood for their livelihood, it looks the same to me as it ever did. I have not seen structural change in the cocoa industry over these past 15 or so years. Like I said, there's maybe new names involved, new companies, certainly new projects and programs will pop up all the time and you know go away when their funding cycle ends. But in general, that structure seems pretty tenacious to me. And I haven't noticed anything, at least yet, that would suggest to me that there's been something systematic that has shifted. For those that might be listening and don't have an entire grasp around the status of of Ghana at the moment, nonetheless, it is an extremely important power in in the world of cocoa. Would you spend just a couple of minutes giving us a, a brief background about maybe it's historical or maybe it's just the current events going on there that acknowledge its place and position in the world of cocoa? Definitely. 
Coco came here in the late 1800s, and by the early 1900s, Ghana had ramped up its production so much that by 1911, it was the largest producer of cocoa in the world. And it kept that position for most of the 20th century. It wasn't until like the late 70s or early 80s that Ivory Coast overtook Ghana as the largest producer. And they've been pretty firmly ever since then in the number one and number two slots as far as you know production volumes. Ivory Coast produces around 40%, give or take, and Ghana produces around 20%, give or take, of all the cocoa in the world. And so you know, you can see that Ivory Coast is double what its neighbor produces, but Ghana here has the much longer history than Ivory Coast. And cocoa is just so completely central to economic life here, both on the national scale. Cocoa remains one of the primary earners of foreign exchange for Ghana. Like it's bringing in a great deal of revenue and the economy in so many ways depends on cocoa even though it's not exclusive, like there's also gold here, there's oil, you know, there's other industries that bring in money. But also on the individual level, people make a living from cocoa. There's about, I think, around 800,000 cocoa farmers in Ghana, maybe a few more. Then from there, you have to imagine the many, many more, like thousands, if not millions of people who support the industry. Like for every cocoa farmer, there's, you know, many other people up the supply chain that are involved in all kinds of things. It's just so central here. And there's almost nothing happens that doesn't reference cocoa in some way. You know, it's part of the economic fabric. In many ways, it's part of the social fabric. And it's just really a commodity, a good that Ghana embraced a long time ago. The fact that people haven't made such a great living off of it in recent decades doesn't seem to have diminished its importance to life here. People persist with cocoa in Ghana, despite the challenges. And that has been, frankly, really interesting for me as a researcher to try to understand how and why, you know, a whole country would continue to farm cocoa as its primary agricultural export when maybe the economics of it aren't so great for individuals. I mean, writing Cocoa was almost, for me, a response to that question. It was a way of trying to think through some of the reasons why, and it continues to inform the work that I do, is that question in my mind. Thank you. In reading the book, I had a chance to personally think through some questions that I had had with greater interest and patience, I suppose, in the terms of recognizing that it's never a singular answer and it's never a simple answer and there's always many more avenues to consider and many more complexities. Do you want to take a moment and speak to what has recently been happening in the news in terms of the agreed upon floor prices? It's a great question, especially considering the the comments I was just making about Coco's tenacity here and the continued reliance on Coco, even when it is a commodity that has a volatile world market price. I mean, that's been the case since the beginning. There have been long historical periods when cocoa's price was rising and everyone was very happy because you know it improves national budgets and improves like, family circumstances when the price gets higher. But you know, it's inevitable that the price will also fall and 
what happened a few years ago in 2016, when cocoa's price fell quite dramatically, it lost more than 30% of its value. That's happened before. And Ghana has been responding to that since cocoa has been here. And if you look historically, you see moments where Ghana, Ivory Coast, the other regional producers, Nigeria, Cameroon, tried either together or separately to institute some kind of mechanism to even out the price. You know, often that took the form of withholding supply during flush years when there was a lot of cocoa coming. And in an attempt to raise the price, you know, if you constrict supply or hold it back, obviously, you know, price goes up. Every time they have not been successful. And, you know, this most recent iteration, which has gone in Iricos establishing a price floor of $2,600 per metric ton, is just the most recent moment in history when Ghana and its neighbors have tried to do this. And I think the news has been really murky about that decision since it was made. You know, there was quite a bit of fanfare. I got a lot of calls from journalists when the decision was announced to institute the price floor. In the course of those conversations, politics always comes up. And it's an election year in both countries next year in Ghana and Ivory Coast. Our conversations inevitably, you know, covered that aspect. Is this a political statement? Is it a mechanism that's really going to work? And ever since then, the only stuff I can find is suggests that it's not working at all. For me, the way I make sense of it is like the way I make sense of many things, which is like, where does the power lie? And even though these two countries, Ghana and Ivory Coast, can you know basically provide the majority of cocoa beans in the world, they don't have power on the global market. And there's, like you said, like everything is so complex that I couldn't name one reason for that. But it has to do with colonialism, you know, colonial structures that set up the economies here to move things out of the country in their raw form and not in any kind of value added form. The consequent lack of industrialization that characterizes West African economies, there are not a lot of factories here. We see them now maybe a little bit more, but they're mainly controlled by foreign companies. Their revenues are not getting taxed in a way that's beneficial to the country or the population of the country. So there's this sort of continuing colonial structure that has just gotten raw materials out of the country with really no benefit to the people here on an industrial scale. There's race. Political economy is not race blind. It's not gender blind. It's not class blind. I mean, it's made up of all of these social constructs and Africa has been talked of in a way that diminishes its contributions to globalization and the world market. So we, we just cannot discount the way that we even think about Africa in terms of race and nation. That all contributes to the kind of enduring, for lack of a better word, poverty around cocoa here. We could sort of go on and on, you know, there's also like the botanical aspects, like once you plant a cocoa tree, it takes a few years before it begins producing fruit, and then it will continue to produce fruit for a good 25 years after that, at least. It's like once farmers plant it, they don't want to rip the trees out of the ground, they just keep going with it. And as long as pods continue to appear on the tree, the farmer sees money coming, you know, and it's so hard 
to take the risk of starting over with some other crop. I mean, I literally devote my entire career to this. I feel like I'll never really have a full answer. All I can do is see things that look like good explanations and follow them down the path that they take me and always knowing that other explanations are also possible and I should follow them too. Absolutely. Does this latest headline feel more or less like progress or does it then way back to this general systemic error where the people who need to be benefiting the most, the cocoa farmers, haven't been asked to be a part of it? That is a great question because the farmers are basically never asked what they want or need. I've done my best in my very recent field work to pose this question, you know, to say, especially around price, like what price would you need to make an impact in your life? What would be really helpful for you? I can and should be asking that question and I will around other things besides price, but I've started there and, you know, the answers that they give me are just in no way reflected in national policies. In my recent work, pretty much the price that farmers have named for me that would be helpful for them is like a 25% increase on the current producer price. First of all, it could not be ever accomplished in $2,600 per metric ton. You know, like you can't set that price floor and then increase the producer price that you're paying to farmers by 25%. Like the math just doesn't work. And definitely farmers' needs and their own expertise and their own analysis of what would improve their livelihood doesn't seem reflected to me in these national discussions. That is definitely one aspect that I think we need a lot more rigorous attention to. We hear like kind of all the time about sustainable livelihoods, about living wage or whatever people want to call it. The numbers that I'm hearing from farmers are not <laughs> their reality of the money they make from cocoa does not match their stated wishes. And so I just don't see that like any of the programs that have been put in place to bring farmers into what we could think about as a sustainable livelihood have happened. But then there's also just like the larger political issue, which is like, if Ghana and Ivory Coast say that they're not going to sell their cocoa except for a minimum of $2,600 per metric ton. If like we're in a supply surplus right now, I would be very surprised if the largest companies, the people who really depend on having a steady supply of cocoa, <laughs> didn't have some in the bank. When you're in this situation where there's just so many beans on the market, I just feel like the gun on every coast don't really have a lot of power. And it's very hard for them to say, okay, we're only going to sell you this stuff if you pay this amount. And that might not be very impactful for the companies that need the beans, at least in this moment. That's a guess. I could be totally wrong. The warehouses in Amsterdam could be empty right now. You know, I don't know. I haven't done that research for myself recently, but Ghana and Ivory Coast just don't seem to be holding the cards right now. And I don't know how much other buying companies and 
importing countries were necessarily impacted by their price floor. I would imagine in your next book that these are some of the questions that you'll be tackling then. What does the basis of of these next few months and years look like for you? I am focusing on Africa. So there's moments in my research plan that I've drawn up for myself where I kind of look outward from Africa. But my priority is definitely what's happening on the continent. What I'm really looking to do is show the realities that I have the privilege of bearing witness to living here in Ghana now with the opportunity to do field work basically wherever I want in sub-Saharan Africa really lets me see things on a day-to-day basis that I, I know that many of the people involved in this industry or interested in this industry don't get to see the luxury of immersion and a platform from which to speak. And I'm planning to use it to share some things that really might not be part of conversations in the cocoa and chocolate worlds. I think Africa is not as central to some discussions as it could be. And when it is central, it's usually for not great reasons. And so, you know, people, in my experience, tend to work based on stereotypical notions of what life is like here and what cocoa and chocolate are like here. And I really think that's not helpful. I think especially when the power of this industry is so skewed that people who are in decision-making positions, people who can exert some influence over this industry, when they're making their decisions based on stereotypical ideas and without being informed by reality, then that's just not a great scenario. And I think they have a responsibility to understand better what's really happening here. And I think that I am in a position to to share some of that and to provide some educational resources that people can use if they are committed to understanding more about what's going on in sub-Saharan African cocoa and chocolate. Some of this does get to these questions that, you know, we've been talking about, like, what is livelihood like for a farmer? You know, has it changed? Is it improving? Are any of these projects and programs working? You know, what would be something different that people could do based on what farmers think would help them? And some of it's based on just really different stuff that I have not yet explored as fully as I would like to. You know, there's tons of value addition happening on this continent. It's maybe not compensated in the way that it should be. It's maybe unknown. It's maybe super challenging in ways that value addition isn't challenging as much in other parts of the world. And I'm just really in a moment in my own career where these are the questions that are driving me. And if I can provide a more realistic picture of Africa, you know, for interested audiences, then that's what I hope and aim to do. And what a treat that we can hear your voice and that you can relay that, those messages directly. Why don't we get a little into the nitty gritty of what your fieldwork looks like and how you access these farmers and these rural areas, because I can imagine it can be at times quite a journey. 
it pretty much always is. And what you just said about hearing my voice, I'm so conscious of this notion of voice and whose voice gets to come through. And I will talk about what it's like to do like the nitty gritty of this, but I, I want to just reflect for a, a minute that I'm not going to diminish like my own voice. Like I, I do think that I've been doing this research and writing and educating and for long enough that I've got enough experience and expertise to make my own voice a meaningful contribution to these conversations. So I'm not trying to diminish my contribution, but I am like acutely aware that farmers' voices and people who do not have this platform that I do and probably never will, their voices are at least as important and probably more important. And I feel like one of the methodological challenges that, you know, I've set for myself is how do I get people's voices to come through who may not have very many ways of speaking their truth about cocoa and chocolate here. It's tied to your question because it's really hard to do that. You know, it's like, if re it's really hard to let someone speak through my own research and writing. I'm doing my best. What it involves is at least at this point, like really spending a lot of time with people and getting to know them and seeing people in different situations and spending time in formal interviews and in informal circumstances. It means like if they're making chocolate, it means buying their product and consuming it myself. You know, it means figuring out where their work fits in with the larger landscape. It's not easy. It feels quite ethnographic in a way. It feels like the anthropologist's method of immersing in a culture and, and trying to see it kind of from within. But I'm really aware that there are limitations to that. And there's only so much that I'm going to be able to convey because I'm me and I'm not in the same circumstances as most of the people I interview and work with and collaborate with. So it's very tricky. It's not a a simple task, but I feel really privileged that I have the time to do it now. But I should answer your question, which is what does it look like? I mean, a lot of the stuff I do nowadays, I can do in an urban, I do in an urban setting, pretty easy and pretty straightforward. You know, if there is a factory I need to visit or, you know, someone I need to meet at a cafe down the road, like that, that's pretty easy in day to day. Going into the bush is harder. The same infrastructural challenges that farmers face in their everyday lives I also face when I'm going into the bush and I've got even more resources than they might usually have, you know, to enable my presence there. I'm on the same roads as the farmer is and I'm like facing the same lack of toilets and clean water and electricity. I do almost nothing at night. I live practically on the equator. We have 12 hours of sunlight and the sun's down by six. And I don't really do anything after that time if it involves traveling. The infrastructure is the infrastructure and I've got to deal with it too. And it does make kind of planning and I spend a lot of time on my own logistics. Okay, this is where I need to go to talk to this person. How am I going to get there? What time do I need to leave that it will suit their schedule? How much water do I need to bring with me? How much food do I need to bring with me? Toilets are enormously forward in my mind. Like once I'm in the bush, basically there's no place to go to the bathroom. Well, there are, obviously there are, but here's the thing. Any 
toilet is fine with me. (laughs) I've used many, many, many different latrines of every variety you could imagine. I mean, over my many years that I've been in and out of the bush and some maybe that you couldn't even imagine. And so I don't really care. But what I find is that people are sometimes ashamed or embarrassed. And so I've learned kind of not to ask, to not actually say, can I use the bathroom? Because people don't want me to see it. It's a real issue. It's a reality. I've spent many uncomfortable hours in the bush for that reason. And if that if it's like that for me, how many thousand million times harder must it be for the people who live there? I'm constantly reflecting on that lack of infrastructure because I also have to face it. Totally. It makes me pause for a moment as well to consider where might I use the restroom? Yeah. I feel like we just do not talk enough about sanitation systems. And I feel like I've brought this up in a few different interviews and things. And and I just feel like we don't even talk about it enough. If you need to go to the bathroom, you need to go to the bathroom. It is a basic need. And when you can't, it's just so uncomfortable to the point of health risk. And there's no magic solution to that issue. And I think it's under-discussed. I think it's underfunded, you know, as far as projects and programming. To be really, really frank, I think it's an issue that when people kind of jet in here, <laughs> like a journalist, you know, an executive from a chocolate company, a tourist or whatever, they typically don't have to deal with that issue. They find ways around it. And so it's just like this reality that people kind of ignore or do their best to ignore. So, I mean, I just feel like I want to bring it up every single time I talk about the rural cocoa farming regions, because can you imagine if you didn't have a bathroom to go to nearby that was safe and clean and worked, life would be completely transformed in a negative way. Mm -hmm. And that's not even taking into consideration, or perhaps it is, but the idea of coming of age or what might be your necessities then when you're menstruating. And I can imagine that especially in these communities that rely day in and day out on people being alert enough to perform a certain task that is needed so crucially to their, you know, it's not like you call up your boss and you say, I'm not coming to the cocoa farm today. Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. I mean, the gender issues here, it's like completely gender inequitable, right? Because it is so much easier for men to deal with lack of sanitation facilities than it is for women for like physical reasons, for biological reasons, for cultural reasons. And again, even I, who, who try my best to think about these things all the time, I'm like amazed at how little I understand or realize. I was in the field about a month ago. I was going with an organization and the driver for the vehicle I was in, I asked him, I said, I always like to bring some gifts of thanks when people spend their time with me in interviews. It's usually not the case that cash is the right thing for lots of different reasons, but it's appropriate to bring a gift to say thank you. And so I tend to bring stuff that's of use to a family. And so I said, listen, I, you know, this is the things I usually bring. Like, what else would you recommend? Like, what really would a farming family appreciate? And the first thing he said was bring sanitary products for women. He said, bring them because it is so hard for women to access and afford products for menstruation and 
they need them, <laughs> you know? So I went like straight to the store and bought a lot and, you know, I've started bringing them into the bush with me as part of my thank you gifts to people. I love that. I will reference for the show notes, a documentary that I watched on Netflix that was touching on this for a community in, I believe it was India that completely shifted around the productivity and not to mention the the shame that women had held over them for having their period. It's certainly an interesting perspective to ruminate on and you know consider for those who might be, be traveling that, as I've referenced in a recent post I was writing on, instead of bringing your brand t-shirt, which might be a valuable addition for someone who that would fit or who might find that interesting, but there are other things that people find more pressing or more precious that they actually need. That could be of use in their everyday lives, and that could really solve an urgent problem for people, right? That kind of gift, that kind of material is just really, it could literally change someone's day or week. The last thing I'll say about this, but like, I can't tell you how many conferences I have been at that are dealing with upper level issues, you know, high stakes kind of issues around cocoa and chocolate. And it is by and large, the people in positions of power who are generally men in this industry who are up on the stage speaking and literally this topic has never come up. Like I have never, I can't even in my memory think of a time when someone stood up on a stage, you know, at some conference and was like, yeah, women need sanitary products for when they have their periods and let's try and get them some. It impacts what a woman can do in her every day. Like I said, it's like when I have the ability to come and go in, you know, into the rural regions and spend time there, then these realities start to present themselves to me. And I'm very grateful for that because no matter how much we learn or study, there's always going to be something that we don't know. Farmers have complex lives and we're not always looking for answers in the right places. I think it takes some repetition and some long-term familiarity for some of this stuff to come to the surface and to come out in ways that I can act upon them. This is just one example of like many that I'm sure I've yet to discover where I just don't get the reality, you know, of, of someone's life in the rural region and I've, and I've got to learn it. And only on a woman in chocolate podcast would this come up. And thankfully it has. And I would encourage if there are those type of leaders that are listening that are in charge of these future conferences to come up with more engaging topics that are inclusive for all. That's a direct call to action. Hey, let's pay a different kind of attention to what people may need. It's a big topic, but I've come across it numerous times in my short career in the chocolate industry. And it just feels like there is this enormous prejudice against Africa and against African cocoa. And I would love to hear from where you stand. Yeah, definitely. That's a big one for sure. Yeah, I'm happy to talk about that. So to put it quite bluntly, what I've been wanting to ask is why are we racist against African cocoa? Yeah, and I'm so grateful for your use of that word, like racist, because it is like race is inextricable from the politics and economics of cocoa. Anyone who says otherwise has not spent any time reflecting on the issue. If we look 
uh, this industry globally, it's black and brown people who farm cocoa, who produce the low value, undervalued raw material. And basically, white people in Europe and North America, historically, who have been holding the power over the finished good that we've ascribed a lot more value to. There's just no getting around that. That's a fact. And because race has meaning in our world, we can't just look at this and say, oh, it's geographical. It's because cocoa only grows between 20 degrees north and south of the equator. And it just happens that that's where black people live and white people live in the temperate zones. No, that's like a very naive way of thinking about it. And if we really, really want to understand, you know, why certain power structures are the way they are, then we have got to talk about race. I use, as do many scholars and analysts, use colonialism or look to colonialism as the reason why so many of these ideas, which maybe didn't originate with colonialism, or maybe they did, but certainly that period of time intensified these ideas that Black Africa was primitive, that it was uncivilized, that it was culturally in some other time. When I was teaching my classes, Africa on Film or Political Economy of Africa, you know, where we dealt with a lot of these issues, you know, I often use the term anachronism because an anachronism is anything that's out of the time that you expect it to be. And Africa is so easily spoken of in this anachronistic way, like it's in some time in the past, you know, like here, no one's caught up with the future, with modernity that exists in Europe. And the colonial system was predicated on this idea. It was built into the structure of the colonial endeavor because what colonialism ultimately was about was taking stuff for like nothing, taking things, taking people, taking agricultural goods, whatever. You can't really do that on the scale that it occurred without somehow justifying it to yourself. And the way that people justified it was the civilizing mission. You know, Black Africa's behind. They need us white people to go and help them. And in the process, we'll just take all their stuff this is where the roots are and they are deep roots, you know, like they are still very much present. They still inform even everyday conversation. I am utterly shocked by the way that people I come across every day, white foreigners, black Africans, whoever will kind of casually refer to these ideas that like Africa is somehow backward. And it's very surprising to me, but Maybe I shouldn't be surprised that this idea persists because it's a profound idea and it shaped the world, not for the better. And it's very, very difficult, I think, for people to think of the world in a way where race and all of the things that come attached to race, you know, as a social construct, where we just kind of forget about them. We don't just forget about them. They are part of this socioeconomic fabric, and we've got to confront them. Without confronting them, then I just do not think that any kind of change is possible. What might that look like in the chocolate industry, that confrontation? You know, that's a great question. And I think that 
One of the things is who gets the stage? And I'm thinking again about these conferences because that's where I'm privy to those things. I'm not privy to boardroom discussions. I don't sit in on business negotiations, but I can imagine they look pretty much like what the conferences look like, where it's a bunch of white, usually men from Europe, you know, or North America who are speaking, who are saying, here's the problem, here's the solution, here's the issue, here's how we're going to address it. I mean, one of the first ways of changing things would be to maybe minimize the role of those voices and start to introduce other voices. I don't think that the Black African people that I see and work with on an everyday basis in the cocoa and chocolate industries here have the same platform as the white folks in Europe and North America, you know, to speak their piece. And just a constant, if you look at newspaper articles, if you look at whatever, blog posts, tweets, like you name it, right? It's like, which voices are coming through? It's not Black African people in this industry. And I think that maybe we start there. Maybe we invite other voices in. But part of that has to be people with power need to do some pretty difficult work, which is to say, maybe my voice has counted too much and I need to consciously relinquish the microphone, <laughs> you know, like metaphorically, you know, and that is just not easy for people to do. Beyond that, it's hard for me to imagine what solutions might look like, because I think that even that first one of like, let's bring more voices to the table. Let's hear from people who don't get to often speak their reality. Let's hear what genuinely motivates them and would make change in their lives. Even that, I think, will be very, very challenging because it would require people who have power to take a step back. Right. How would I highlight more women in chocolate in Africa? Where do I go to find them? Like, do I type in hashtag Ghanaian cocoa? I'm sure that's one place to start. I've been talking about race as the sort of main social construct that shapes our ideas about African cocoa and chocolate. But obviously, these things are never separate from everything else about us. In gender women's sexuality studies, which was my graduate work was in that field, the term that we use is intersectionality. And what it means is that you can't separate out race and say, okay, this is blackness or this is whiteness and say that's, that's its own thing. And it's separate to someone's gender and separate to someone's class. And it's separate to someone's sexuality. You know, these things all work together. They're interlocking. We can't separate them out and just say, okay, this is the one thing that defines somebody because being a white woman is really different to being a white man here in Ghana. You know, like I cannot separate out my own gender and race from each other when I'm doing anything, you know, not not just here, but kind of anywhere. And so the theory applies universally. One of the important things to remember is that class really matters. People, black or white, you know, men or women may have different access to ways to speak their voice. You know, they may be able to take advantage of certain opportunities or not. And I think that if we add class into this this discussion, then we can really quickly see that even though, like, yes, theoretically, everybody has access to the internet, 
the socioeconomic circumstances of farmers, for the most part, are not such that they can easily take advantage of that opportunity. This comes down to sometimes literacy, you know? It's like if you want to get a great education here in Ghana, you can certainly do it, but you need to pay. And not everybody can do that. If you're not literate, then how are you going to make your voice heard through these forms? We can also forgive ourselves for not being able to make every single person's voice as heard as possible. Like, I don't know that it's your responsibility to now go and find all these people who are doing all this great work in cocoa and chocolate in Africa and like give them a platform for a voice because maybe you can't, you know, like maybe it's really hard and maybe the system doesn't allow it. But when moments arise where it does become possible, then I think that we have to take advantage of them. Just to give an example, it's like, I think about these conferences, you know, where so much of this discussion happens, where people are visible, where they kind of make their power known. Nobody's paying for farmers to attend. Nobody's inviting them. Like nobody's saying, yes, it's very expensive and really, really problematic to get you a visa, but we're going to help you. This stuff very rarely happens. So sometimes it's a matter of resources. Sometimes it's a matter of people from outside coming here and immersing in this environment. And I think sometimes it's a case of saying, well, maybe I can't make the impact that I would like there, but I can make an impact doing this other thing that I do really well. So I'm going to direct my energies there, be an ally, be an ideological ally to the people who are doing this work. We can't solve every problem. Like we can't make everybody heard. So let's do what we can. Very good points. Indeed. I need to do a little more research on this, but the upcoming event put on by the FCCI, the Chocolate Conservatory in Paris, I believe is putting into play the circumstance of for every ticket purchased, money goes towards introducing a producer. Yes. I was actually thinking of the conservatory when I changed that wording, but yeah, I mean, it's a rare example of an institution saying we recognize that some things are not going to be possible unless we fund them. If more organizations, if more companies would take that perspective, then I think we'd start to have some different kinds of conversations. For sure. And I really like the idea of learning how and where to become an ally. There's a piece from your book, Coco, page 130. Certainly some craft makers do pay premium prices for beans, but it is a mistake to assume that if a bar costs $10, nine of those must be going to a farmer. Chances are they are not. I do think that paying higher prices for fine flavor cocoa is, is a valuable aspect, but there are other ways to consider perhaps how cocoa farmers could provide value to what we do. And maybe it is, as you were saying, it could be that the community is illiterate. It could be that the person you're trying to reach doesn't have a place for their voice to go, but that doesn't mean that their manual skills or other things that they can be taught or already know can be applied to how we do business. My packaging is currently printed in Spain, but maybe in a future iteration, it might be that I can move that somewhere else. It's a brilliant concept, you know? It's like, let's rethink our sourcing, not just around cocoa, but about everything that goes into making a chocolate bar and putting it on a shelf. 
this is a little bit like meta, but Africa is globalized in the same way as every other place on earth. You know, <laughs> and like in many ways, like Africa has enabled globalization far more than we give it credit for. But no one ever thinks of it that way. Like, and I love that you said that. It's like, why don't I think about sourcing, even packaging, which is actually huge to from a place where I hadn't thought about sourcing it before. Like, why don't I spend my money in a different way that's not just which chocolate bar do I buy? Where do our resources go? And how can we imagine them going through different channels? One of the things that's just so important for me to say as many times as I can, like over and over again, is that no one thing is going to solve everything. And I think that in Coco, I did my best to make this point that we live in this very reductionist discursive moment where by that, I mean, we want to reduce everything to this easily comprehensible idea. And, you know, in the cocoa industry, it's so much price. Price is all anybody talks about. And if we just can solve price, then we're going to be changing everything. That's just a not realistic way of thinking about life. I feel like it's okay to make small change. It's okay to make an effort to do something differently in this one area and not solve every single problem, but also in doing that to be really aware and be really clear that just because I am able to do this thing doesn't mean it's going to change all these other things. And I think that kind of complexity is really lacking in industry discussions. Like I just don't, we're so focused on price or whatever the buzzword is of the day, you know, when it comes to the projects and programs, now it's deforestation. And so everything that's going to get funded now is forest friendly. And like there's certain parts of Ghana where there is no forest. So to think that there's some kind of panacea, like that we have some magical key that we're going to turn and it's going to change everything, it's just not realistic. I advocate at the same time for doing what we can no matter how like small or incremental it may feel, and also recognizing that these problems are massive and we need to acknowledge their complexity. Thank you. That's really important to consider. This seems like a nice place to move onto some things that are coming out of West Africa that are inspiring. And if you could share, please, a few examples of some of the people you might be coming across or projects that you're discovering that are you know, moving the needle. I would love to hear about them. Every day in the rural regions, in the factories, somebody does something to make change. I mean, there is the stasis. The rural areas look pretty much the same to me. But that doesn't mean that at this micro level, every single day stuff isn't happening. And so I'm constantly inspired by individual people. Like when I sit down with a farmer for a couple of hours and hear, you know, as much as I can about their cocoa livelihood and their relationship with the crop, I always come away feeling really good about certain things. It could be that there's been this intergenerational wealth in the form of land that has produced cocoa and has enabled people to proceed with their education in ways that maybe they couldn't. There's like daily sacrifices on the part of parents, men and women doing things every day that are purely so that their kids can have something more than they had. Those things are a constant inspiration for me. And I feel like we also don't talk enough about them. I feel like the conversations are generally, and maybe I've also contributed to this myself, is that it's just constant suffering. There's no moments of 
hope or lightness or success in people's lives. That's absolutely not true. So that's like one thing that's happening. But then in a different way, there's many, many companies now who are operating here in Ghana, across Sub-Saharan Africa that are kind of saying, you know what, we have had cocoa for a very long time and it's time to do something with it that maybe people haven't tried before. Bean to bar, I think, is pretty new still. If we look historically, where it was so industrial for so long that actually starting from beans is kind of like a new concept. And people are doing it here. Yes, we had artisans a million years ago, and it's not like people are reinventing the wheel, but it feels like that. So much more often than I had anticipated, do I meet people here who are like, yeah, I either want to start a bean to bar company or I've already done it or not only have already done it, but I'm already selling. That's one really interesting thing for me is to see that how this newish concept of I too can make chocolate myself as an individual, like, and I don't have to be Mars or Cadbury. I can do this has really taken hold here. At the same time, I would say that in general terms, there's so much entrepreneurship in Ghana. And we've yet to move to a place, I think, where people who have an entrepreneurial spirit think of cocoa as their first thing. It's not the kind of environment, you know, for many reasons where people are like, oh, yeah, let me like make a business out of cocoa. But for those who do, it's super inspiring. And I feel like, wow, way to make some history. And instead of just acknowledging and feeling grateful for all that cocoa has brought to Ghana, I'm actually going to try and do something more with it. That feels like a nice place to end. But I do definitely want to get your perspective on what maybe else you want to say. Thank you for asking that because it does help to take a step back and see where we've gone and what might there still be left to say. This is about me, but it's got implications. You know, I've been studying cocoa as my main thing that I do for 15 years. So it's not a little bit of time. Obviously, people have had much longer careers than me. Hopefully, mine will continue. But I've been doing it for long enough that I feel like I know something. I have been just constantly impressed by the need now that I'm back here in Ghana and doing this just so much closer to origins, which is a reality that even with all my fieldwork experience, I feel like I, it's, it's not my reality. I didn't grow up as a cocoa farmer, you know, so I've just really kind of had a revolution in my thinking of I need to actually pretend like I don't know anything. I need to imagine that this is every interview is my first interview, that like every conversation is going to be an opportunity for me to learn something new. And that's been a major shift for me because when I was at the University of Washington, you know, teaching for so long and when I was in my professor role and working on cocoa and then going on my book tour, those circumstances push me into the role of expert. They push me into the position of speaking knowledge to audiences, you know, so it's totally this like one directional thing where I'm up there as the voice that knows something. That's totally fine, you know, and it's good. And I'm really grateful to be in that role. And I'm happy to do it when it's right and when it's correct. But I have to pretend like I didn't do any of that and just say, okay, even if I'm talking to someone here and they say something that I'm like, no, 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 that's, 
wrong. (laughs) I'll give you an example. I was talking to someone the other day who was involved in cocoa farming, but he was telling me, no, 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 we only have one season here and the seasons now. And I was just thinking, no, 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 that can't possibly, there's two crops in Ghana and there always has been, there's the main harvest and then there's the light crop. And we were definitely in the light crop when this man and I were talking. And I had to stop myself and say, okay, wait a minute, maybe from his perspective, there is just one season. Why would he be talking about this in this way? Like, what is it about his experience with cocoa farming that is making him use this language? Oh, no, 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 we only have one season here and we're in it now. And I still haven't quite figured it out. I have some ideas, but it just forced me to say, okay, what I've accepted as like a basic truth of the way cocoa grows in West Africa and maybe isn't his experience. And maybe there's another way of thinking about it. And if I try to take that other way of thinking about it into my own head, I might see something new. I might learn something different. It's just been an ongoing inspiration for me. It's been an ongoing motivation to just do my best to have humility, like to be humble in this experience as a researcher and to start from a position of like, what can I learn? instead of what can I say? What can I share? What can I teach? It's really time for me to not teach for a while and to learn afresh. I'm grateful for the opportunity to say that out loud because I think the industry would maybe benefit if more people took that opinion, you know, and said, okay, maybe I can just set aside what I think I know and see what new learnings come my way. Almost ironic, but the idea that we can rely on these like century old proverbs to be applied to our modern lives, but just a moment to walk in someone else's shoes or to take everything from an, a new perspective with new, what's the phrase? New glasses? Yes. My languages are confusing right now. They are because we don't have a good language for this. Like humility is probably the best I can do as far as a word, you know, and I don't think we have a well-developed language around how to de-expert ourselves how to say, maybe I know nothing. I thought I knew something, but maybe I don't. So let me see how I can learn again. That's not how we're taught. We're taught that like our careers are this constant advancement that we just get more and more knowledge and more and more expert until someday we know it all. And my gosh, especially when you're a professor, it's like, that's your job. It's like stand up in front of a bunch of fresh faces every three months and be like, hey, You've got to learn all the things I know now. We don't allow ourselves the luxury of saying, maybe I don't know. So how can we even talk about it? You know, it's a hard thing. This experience with you, Dr. Leslie, is just one of those opportunities to say, please, please share with me where you've been, what you've learned. And I'm very grateful for you offering what you've witnessed and and what your hopes are for our industry from now and into the future. Well, it is just my absolute pleasure. I love nothing more than having a good conversation about cocoa and chocolate. And it just, every moment I also learn, you know, I learn how to express, I learn what questions drive me. And so I'm very thankful that we've had this time to talk. And I also just really like going where the wind blows. I think the midges would feel the same way. So we have to be like a midge. Thank you for being well-tempered, Dr. Leslie, and thank you all for listening. This episode is produced and edited by me, Lauren Hynek. 
opening instrumental track and closing song written and performed by Anna Garcia. Get in touch with me on Instagram, Lauren on the weekend, WKND, or at Weekend Chocolate. I hope to see many of you in Paris at the Salon du Chocolat. If you've enjoyed this podcast today, please share. That sincerely helps keep this project going. I have just a final bonus for you all. So have a listen at the end of this episode, just following the song, where Dr. Leslie shares some thoughts. One morning when I was a child, my mommy asked me with a smile, what you will be when you get older. The only thing I have clear is just to make this place a bit warmer. continue to discuss what keeps you going and drives you. One thing that I think would be nice for me to say out loud is that, you know, I've been turning this over a lot in my mind recently about when organizations or companies or people come to Ghana or pretty much anywhere in sub-Saharan Africa, they kind of come with their predetermined answer or their project. Like they've got funding for a specific thing. And so that's what they're going to do. I've been thinking a lot about how to project the idea that we need to reverse that. You know, when anyone with resources comes to Ghana or Ivory Coast or whatever, they need to leave their preconceived ideas behind. And that connects back to what I'm doing with this next book. It's like your reality, your idea may not quite match what's here. 